All right, well, will you take your Bible with me and turn to Matthew chapter 26? Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 46 this morning, but mainly we're going to be looking at verses 36 to 46. But I'll go ahead and read all of those. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer. Is at hand. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to approach your word now. We pray that what is said will be true and will be honoring to you. And Spirit, I ask for your help, and I ask for your help for our congregation to see the truths of this scripture. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last, last time we were together, we had looked at the last Passover and how it moved into what we see as the first communion. Remember that the last Passover that Israel had celebrated for so long had now melted and had been refashioned into what we now have as the Lord's Supper. And Jesus makes an important comment during that last Passover and that first communion time on that night. He says that his blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And is this not even why we come and worship together this morning? Because Jesus' blood has been shed. He has been broken. His blood has been poured out on our behalf. And so this is why we come and we worship Him every single week. Because He is worthy of it. He is worthy as the one whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. To now receive our worship week in and week out. We come to worship the Lamb that was slain and who had been resurrected, thus giving even us victory over sin and death, removing the consequences of the wrath of God from us, clothing us in righteousness. And so what a beautiful and necessary truth it is that Jesus has been, He has poured out His blood 
for our forgiveness. This is represented in the Lord's Supper that we just participated in. Take this cup. It's the new covenant in his blood that's been poured out for your forgiveness. But as this night continues, which in our minds, when we, we, we think, okay, at maybe around midnight, our day ends, and then the new day begins. For the Jews in this time, it would have been sunset. So for instance, sunset tonight would mean it Monday has started. So for them, it had been Thursday. They participated in the Lord's Supper and communion and all that. But now, it, now the sun is gone. Now it is Friday night. They had participated in that communion. And now they are going to the Mount of Olives. And they are going to a place called Gethsemane. And so they leave that place where they had the Lord's Supper. And they head to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus, like he had done with the prediction that Judas would betray him, he now predicts a couple of more things concerning the rest of his disciples. We read together uh, in our text, we saw in verse 31, where he said, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away from me because of this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And then in verse 34, he says, truly, I tell you, talking to Peter, he says, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me. And so he's already discussed and had that discussion back at the Lord's table where he said, Judas is going to betray me, or at least he and Judas knew that that was going to happen. And now that they've moved over to the Mount of Olives, he says that the rest of you are going to leave me. And he says specifically that Peter is going to deny him. So this is what Jesus knows. He knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. And he knows that all the rest of the disciples are going to scramble. But he also knows some good news. And we saw that in verse 32. Why don't you look there again? He says, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So he knows all of the bad news. He knows all of his friends are going to scramble and hit the road and leave from him as soon as the persecution comes bearing down on him in just a few hours. But he also knows that in a few short days that he will be resurrected and he will be with them Again, we'll look more at Peter's denial next time we're together. But from their position on the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his disciples, several of them, move over to Gethsemane. And it's really at this time where we see Jesus fall under incredible spiritual warfare. So again, they leave wherever they were on the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives, so he took... Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, and he takes them over to Gethsemane in order to pray. And this passage is just a beautiful, raw passage. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. But there are certain texts that just feel like holy ground. And this is one of them. Spurgeon actually said this about this passage. No man can rightly expound or preach and teach such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful heartbroken meditation more than for human language. And I think Spurgeon's right. To rightly preach this passage is a hard duty. And my hope is for all of us as we look at it together that we can look at it with hearts broken over what our Savior has done for us and prayerfully meditate, I hope, over these words together. And so Jesus and his disciples They're on that Mount of Olives. They leave, go over to Gethsemane with a few of his disciples, which would have been this place called Gethsemane, which would have been a a grove at least of olive trees. 
but it also would have been a place where they actually pressed the oil, the olives for their oil. The mood of the text becomes immediately clear in verse 37. You see that Jesus is obviously very distraught and Matthew informs us that he is sorrowful and troubled. So that anguish was beginning to come upon Christ. He knew the end was in sight. It was so, it was coming just two or three hours away. He's beginning to feel the weight of the cup that he is to bear. The word Gethsemane itself actually means oil press. So again, this is where they would have taken all of these olives that they harvested and they would have put it on a press and they would have pressed the oil out of it. And on this night, this place where olives were normally under extreme pressure, Jesus would now be the one who was placed under immeasurable pressure. Jesus himself would be pressed. Look at what he says in verse 38. He acknowledges his sorrow. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And I wonder if you have ever seen somebody in extreme agony. Or maybe yourself, you've been in extreme agony. Not necessarily physical pain, but inner turmoil and utter anguish. I can remember when I was younger, I played baseball with a guy who was a few years older than me. And he went off to college at Liberty University. And he ended up in a dying in a rafting accident while he was in college. And they had his funeral for him when when I was in high school. And I remember watching his mother at the funeral. She had just lost her son. She didn't get to say goodbye. She had to identify his body after being three days in water. And she was weeping uncontrollably and totally incapable of walking, basically, behind his casket. And I'm not sure I've ever seen anybody in such internal agony, the anguish of losing her son. It was horrific. And no doubt many of you have experienced certain levels of agony and loss, and you feel that. Maybe that kind of agony that words cannot even describe. And maybe when we take that, and not to, not to make light of what you've gone through, but maybe when we take that and the things that I've gone through, and you times that by a million, we get close to maybe where Jesus must have been feeling. He essentially says that his agony is deathly. And we need to take that quite literally, quite seriously, that the agony that he was already feeling as he is in the garden was enough to bring death upon him. I am sorrowful even unto death, he says. And let's not forget what was said of him even back in the Old Testament, famously stated in Isaiah 53, that he would be a man of sorrows. He would be acquainted with grief. And so he tells the disciples to remain in the garden, to watch with him. And Jesus goes off into the distance to begin his first round of praying as he is in utter agony. And we find this in verse 39. Look there with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. And I want you to see a few things about his prayer. First, you see how he is postured. You see how he addresses his father. We see his requests. And we see that he submits himself to the father. But first, consider with me his posture. The text says that he goes and he falls on his face. So this is a a total position of humility. This is 
brokenness. This is emptiness. This is a a posture of prayer that is totally reliant on God. But what about how he addresses God? He addresses him as his father. And remember that addressing God as his father is really one of the things that has gotten him into so much trouble. The religious rulers of that day would hear him refer to God as his father and they immediately said, you can't do that because by calling God your father, you are making yourself equal with God. And so this was a big troubling thing and one of the things that has gotten him into so much trouble. Mark's gospel records for us that Jesus not only calls God his father here, but he actually uses the word Abba. He says, Daddy. This intimate relationship that Jesus has with the Father is expressed in the language that he uses. He calls him Abba, Daddy. The request is clear enough that he makes. He says, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was asking for this cup that he would have to drink from. This figurative, metaphorical cup would really represent what his destiny would be in his death. But notice one of the most important words in verse 39 He says, nevertheless. So, Father, my desire is not to have to drink of this incredibly bitter cup that I even decided in eternity past with you that I would drink from. I still don't want to do it. Nevertheless, submission, not what I will, but what you will. And there are times, certainly for all of us, I think, where those words are so difficult to say. Not my will, God, but your will. Because the truth is that the prosperity gospel preachers, all those guys that you see on TV with the really slick hair and the really nice suits, those guys say, donate to my ministry and then you're going to be fabulously wealthy. You you donate to my ministry and you throw those seeds my way and God is going to grow them in an incredible way, probably give you a new car, help you to pay off your house faster and make you healthy, wealthy and wise. But our lives as we know, are not going to be easy. They were never intended to be easy. You look throughout the whole entire New Testament, you cannot tell me that as you watch the lives of the disciples in the book of Acts, and you see all of the things that Paul goes through, there was nothing easy about the Christian life. There was nothing easy about Jesus' life. Why should we expect comfort? Why should we expect ease? Our lives as Christians are going to be filled with various levels of suffering. We're going to experience death. Our families are going to die one by one all around us. We may even experience persecution for our faith. And there's going to be plenty of times where we are on our face like Jesus is on his face and saying, God, let this cup pass. I don't want to go through this. Don't let my spouse die. Don't let me be sick. Don't let this persecution come upon me. And I think a lot of the agony in it for us is when we're forced to say, although I've prayed for this to pass, not my will, but your will. And once you cross that threshold where you say, not my will, but your will be done, God, then we have the hard work of saying, my loving Father wants me to go through something hard. I will go through it. 
I will bless his name. If this is what he wants for me, then it must be for his good and for his glory. But that is difficult, again, to walk over that threshold. Your will, not my will. But knowing that this hardship is something that God wants you to go through. Tim Keller says this. Unless we are profoundly certain that God is our father, we will never be able to say, thy will be done. Unless we are profoundly certain that God is our Father, we will never be able to say, Thy will be done. Is God the man upstairs who levies hardships onto you and always feels to be fighting against you? Then what comes into your life is going to be viewed that way. A harsh man up there who just has your ill will in mind. But if you are certain that he is your father and what he does and what he presents in your life is for your good and for his glory, then you will be able to trust him completely and to surrender yourself to him saying, it's your will that is to be done. A couple other things I need to mention about this time in Gethsemane that we don't find within the book of Matthew is what we find in Luke's gospel. He says that an angel actually comes to Jesus from heaven in order to strengthen him. This is not the first time that we've seen angels come to Jesus and minister to him. You may remember back in Matthew chapter 24, the spirit of God leads Christ into the wilderness in order to be tempted. Jesus, of course, has victory over the temptation of Satan. And then there are a couple of ministering spirits, a couple of angels that come to Jesus in order to strengthen him. But there's another unique thing that happens, which is not found within the book of Matthew, and that's found in Luke as well, where Jesus begins sweating great drops of blood. The Gospel of Luke, again, is the only place to record this for us, and it makes sense that Luke would be considering Jesus' physical health and what's going on with him physically, because Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. And so that's something that would be striking to Luke in his mind. And we know this condition to be hematidrosis. And so what happens is the blood vessels begin to burst within the face because of the pressure, the anguish that the person is under. And then that blood begins to go into the sweat glands and then it begins to come out onto the face. And this can happen to people who are under extreme anguish. And what's kind of remarkable to me is that he's experiencing all of this and he hasn't even been touched yet. When we consider the anguish and the trouble that Christ had gone through and all the struggles that he had, we usually consider the fact that he he was smitten, he was hit, he was spat on, he was crucified, he had the crown of thorns put in his head, he had all of those things happen to him. And so when we think of the anguish of Christ, we often think of that physical brutality, but we cannot miss the emotional and the spiritual anguish that he's experiencing, again, causing that blood to come out of his face and making him feel as though the very next step is going to be death in itself. What a testament to the strength of our Lord, the stamina that he must have had to endure so much physical and emotional and spiritual anguish all at the same time to go through even the remainder of this day without any food, without any water, without any sleep and to experience all of this pain. Luke's gospel says that he was only a stone's throw away from his three disciples. He finishes his first round of praying and then he goes back to his disciples and he finds them asleep. Look at verse 40. And he came to the disciples 
and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you cannot watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is one of those moments in the lives of the disciples where I don't understand what they're thinking. I don't, I, I can't put myself there and get it. I can understand falling asleep, but I can't quite understand when somebody you love says, I am in such anguish unto death. And he goes away for a little while. Wouldn't you be so worried? Wouldn't you feel such anguish on their behalf? Even yet these disciples fall asleep. It just seems so insensitive after what Jesus had already told them. And so he comes back and he finds them sleeping. Even Peter, who had just made that great declaration that no matter what happens, even if you die, I am going to stay with you. I am not going to fall away. And here he is falling into sleep. But Jesus says you couldn't watch. You couldn't be in prayer for one hour. Jesus tells them to watch and to pray so that he would not enter into temptation. And then that famous one-liner, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So the, the spirit is willing, right? I'm willing, not the spirit of God, but like you. My spirit is willing. I want to do this, but there's a massive obstacle in the way, and that obstacle is me. Theologian D.A. Carson puts it this way, spiritual eagerness is often accompanied by carnal weakness, a danger experienced by successive generations of Christians. And isn't that not true? You get this, don't you? I, I get this. We're often so spiritually eager, right? We want to grow. We say that we want to grow. We say that we want to do all of these good things for the Lord, that we want to please God. At the beginning of the year, we set out to read our Bible, right? So I'm going to read my Bible through the whole year, three chapters every day. And then by the second day, it's not happening, right? It's, it's, it's really so clear what Carson says, that our spiritual eagerness is met by our carnal weakness. So I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of us have fallen asleep while we pray. How many of us, when we open that Bible to begin reading, our eyes just immediately start getting heavy or during a sermon and we fall asleep and you come up after and say, the spirit is willing, Pastor, but the flesh is weak. But it's true, isn't it? That Jesus goes away from them For a second time, after he comes to them and he sees them, their spirit, I'm sure, is willing, but their flesh is weak. And Jesus goes away from them and he begins to pray again. You see his prayer in verse 42. It's a very similar prayer to the first prayer. He's still desiring to come for the cup to pass from him, but he still wants to do the will of the Father. And his second prayer goes back. And after his second prayer, he goes back and he finds his disciples asleep again. He goes away again for the third time and he prays, saying the same thing. Let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. And you know, gardens are significant within the Bible. Significant things happen in gardens in the Bible. You think of Adam, right? What happens there with Adam in the Garden of Eden? Adam fundamentally disregards the will of God for his own desires. So God says, Adam, don't eat that fruit. And Adam essentially says by his actions, not what you will, God, but what I will. But what happens in the garden with Jesus, the second Adam? Jesus denies his own desires. He denies his own will and he chooses to drink the bitter cup given to him by the Father. 
I want you to see this a little more deeply. Hold your finger at Matthew 26 and turn over to Romans 5. This is an important passage to make this connection. But Romans chapter 5. Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden in comparison with Jesus' obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane and what Adam's disobedience and what Christ's obedience mean for us even today. Well, look at verse 12 of Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so Adam was acting as a representative head for the entire human race. The first man. They used to teach it to children this way when they would teach them their letters. They would say, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So all of this is is the result of sin, and this sin has spread. Death has reigned. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So flip back to Matthew 26. So do you see the importance of this? That by one trespass, by the sin of Adam, that has led to the condemnation of the entire human race. But the one act of Jesus, the act of righteousness by Christ, now leads to the justification and to the life of many of us. So by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By Christ's obedience, the many were made righteous. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is praying there, although again his desire would be for that cup to be taken away, he is choosing in those moments to actively obey the will of God. And because of this submission by Christ to the Father, he obeyed him perfectly, thus eventually going to the cross, bearing our sin and giving us righteousness, beginning the reverse of the curse. Adam making us sinners. Christ making us righteous. We often say that we're not saved by works, but that we're saved by grace through faith. And that is very true. We are not saved by our own works, but we are saved by works. We're saved by Christ's works. And so that's a very important distinction to make. We're not saved by our works, that anything we could do could lead to our salvation. But Jesus' works, when those perfect works are applied to us, then we are saved by Him and through Him. So we're saved by Christ's works. We are saved because of His obedient work on our behalf. And so you may be here this morning and the work of Jesus means nothing to you. This may be historical to you. You might believe that Jesus went to a garden and you might believe that some blood went down his face. You might believe that He went to the cross and He was beat and all those kinds of things. But it isn't real to you. That, that those acts, those works of Jesus have nothing to do with you. And friend, I would implore you to look a little deeper upon Christ. That not just doing these things because he wanted to make his mark on history. He's not just doing these things because he wanted to have a little fun or to make his own name great. But what he's doing, he's doing them in order to please his father. 
He's doing them to appease God's wrath and to save His people from their sin. So this work of Christ and His active obedience in His life and His obedience in His death should be felt in the depths of your bones. And so if you, if you don't feel that, if you haven't experienced that transition from moving out of your sinful patterns and your sinful behaviors and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the king, kingdom of His beloved Son, into Jesus' kingdom, and that you are now one of His and you are in Christ, then there is serious work to be done. You must look closer upon what He has done. And by accepting the work of Christ, God will accept you. And so it's decided. Jesus has prayed to the Father three times within the Garden of Gethsemane. And He emerges from this garden willing to do what He knows the Father wants Him to do. Look at verse 45 with me. Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the time had come. Judas was on his way with a group of religious rulers carrying clubs and torches, and Jesus goes to meet him. You notice that Jesus doesn't run. Jesus doesn't get up and say, I'm going to pull that cool little thing I did before when I slipped away from the religious rulers. No. He goes and he meets his betrayer head on. The determination was made. Jesus is completely submissive to the will and to the plan of God. And what is this will and to the plan of God? It is the same will that had been made in eternity past. It's the same will that was written down in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And like the olives would be crushed in the press in Gethsemane, Jesus would soon be crushed and his blood would be poured. Listen to these words from Michael Card from his book of Violent Grace. Gethsemane, the garden where Jesus' awful drama played itself out, means place of crushing. The name came from the olive press located there. You can imagine how an olive press works. Beautiful, ripe olives go in. Heavy stones apply irresistible pressure. And the precious oil flows out. All that remains in the press is unrecognizable pulp. For just such a crushing, Jesus has come to Gethsemane. Before the night is over, there will be a series of struggles. And in each one, he will be crushed. Two days later, the human form of the Son of God will have been beaten and battered beyond recognition. But from His crushing, precious and abundant life will flow for you and me. Without the sorrows of Gethsemane, there will be no salvation at Golgotha. So just hours before, Jesus was here in Gethsemane. He was with His disciples in the other room, upper room, and He said His blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And here He is now, Already with his blood being spilt upon his face because of the turmoil literally beginning to be pressed out of him. And so Jesus emerges from Gethsemane victorious over his own tendencies now with that human flesh, his own human desires and over any temptation that Satan would have been throwing at him while he was there. He is now ready for his greatest work. A church... Do you need a reminder for how much God loves you? God, Christ, loves you. And we forget sometimes. 
We forget sometimes that he loves us immensely. But our passage this morning so clearly expresses his love. We used to sing a song at the church I grew up and the chorus went like this. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. And we tend to forget. We forget Gethsemane. We forget his agony. We forget his great love for us. And so for a beautiful reminder, look to Gethsemane this morning. Let it lead you to Calvary where his greatest act of love for you was displayed. And even from there, allow yourself to be led to the very throne room of God where Jesus is now still loving you and even now making intercession for you. Hebrews 7 says he will, he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8 Jesus is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 1 John 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so remember, Lord, we thank you for going to this garden and knowing the great pain that it would cost you. We thank you for being willing to take upon yourself that mantle of being the man of sorrows, and being acquainted with grief. And Lord I pray that as. We continue to consider these words. That we'll not take them lightly. But that we will remember all that you have done for us. Knowing that ourselves would have fainted. Under the slightest bit of this kind of turmoil and anguish. We thank you for your work. We thank you.